0: Because we see imperfectly in mortality, not everything is going to make sense right now. Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. Doubt your doubts before you doubt your faith.
1: Whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life.
0: Welcome back, everyone. This is the To Whom Shall We Go podcast. This is your host, Ryan Sorensen. Today we're pleased to have Carrie Muelstein joining us. Thanks so much for being on, Carrie. Oh, I'm
1: so excited to be with you. Thank you, Ryan.
0: So to get us started, can you tell us a little bit about what your background is and how you got interested in those things? Uh, Sure.
1: I I mean, it really kind of started out with uh, I loved, uh, I found I loved teaching and at some point decided I'd always thought I can't be a teacher because they don't make enough money. And At some point I decided I'd rather do something that I enjoy than uh, and make less money than do something I hate and make more money. The money won't make me happy. So I decided to be a a teacher. And uh, as I was going along, I fell in love with the ancient world. Uh, just absolutely in love with it, and uh, fell in love not only with teaching it, but researching about it. So I decided a, a university professor was uh, the role for me. And um, I was originally doing uh, mostly biblical studies, especially Old Testament biblical Hebrew, uh, but felt like to understand that world. I needed to understand symbolism. And as I started working on understanding symbolism, I figured out that no one does symbolism like the Egyptians. so, Started studying ancient Egypt, and I fell in love with that. So after getting a master's in Biblical Hebrew, I went and got a a PhD in uh, Egyptology at UCLA with uh, a secondary emphasis of Hebrew language and literature. And so that's uh, kind of what what got me uh, to there. I I initially was really in love with studying um, the period of the Exodus and and so on, and loved that how the biblical and the Egyptian world met in, in the period of the Exodus, but so many people kept asking me questions about the Book of Abraham. I kind of wanted to stay away from Book of Abraham stories because it seemed like something where people just get nasty with each other, which turns out to be true. But um, I was going to stay away from it. But so many people kept asking me questions about it that I, I felt like, well, I, I need to at least be able to answer these questions a little bit. Uh, people just kind of expected an LDS Egyptologist to know something about it. Uh, And the more I got into that, the more I found it a really fascinating story, I found there were a lot of honest seekers of truth who really wanted to know answers to questions and I felt like I could help answer those questions and the more I researched the more I got hooked and fell in love with it I figured I I, uh, had had experience doing 19th and uh, 20th century history. I'd had, uh, I even helped write an award-winning book with that. Uh, I would had experience in, in both ancient uh, Israel and, and Abraham's world and Egypt and the, also the world of Egypt at the time period when the papaya were created. And, and there aren't very many people who have all of those skill sets. And I kind of figured out, well, I, I've been put in a position where I can help people with this. I better do it. And I've, I've really kind of fallen in love with that as well. I don't like the part where people are mean, but the rest of it, I really, really like. So it's good, fun stuff.
0: That's awesome. And we're super excited to have you on. And it's awesome that we have people in the church that have your skills and that we can be able to utilize that to help build the kingdom. So thank you so much. Um, and as we, before we jump on in, could you tell us a little bit about the, the recent book you published through Deseret Book about the Book of Abraham?
1: Yeah. Uh, so the Desiree book has a little series called the Let's Talk About series where they're trying to take issues something a little bit like what you're doing, issues that people have questions about and saying, let's just talk about this. Let's not hide stuff. Let's not uh, run away from things. Let's just put out there. Here's what people have questions about. And here are the things we know. And here are the things that we don't know. And so uh, they, they asked me if I would work on uh, that for the book of Abraham, and I was more than happy to do that. So I, I, I wrote the book. It was, uh, I like their format because it forces you to be small. It's a, it's a very small, very readable book. It's like $11 or something like that. It's pretty cheap because it's, it's I mean, it's really a teeny book. Uh, it has teeny prints so that makes so there's a little bit more in there than you would think when you see the size of the book but um, and the object was for it to be readable honest forthright and understandable uh, i was fortunate that they found for me some some great reviewers so the process if you're not familiar with uh, publication especially anything academic and desert book doesn't isn't really an academic publisher but they they try to make sure they're accurate and with this they took they went through the process that an academic publisher would they found three different reviewers for me and as i mentioned uh the book of abraham and studying the book of abraham has a lot of different elements you know there's there's a theological side and then all these different historical elements so they found three different reviewers so that they could find someone who was an expert on all the different aspects of what i was talking about and they found really the three best you could ask for in many ways on, on these subjects. And typically it's a blind review. You don't, you don't know whose work you're reading. And, and uh, I don't, when I see the reviewers comments, I don't know who made it. So you can just be really candid uh, with these things. But, um, but in this case, all three reviewers actually said, you know, this is such an important topic and we want so much to help make it be good. We wouldn't mind you letting Carrie know who we are, uh, well, they said who I am. It, three separate individuals said that, um, so that we could correspond together to work this out to get it to be just right. And often they had different viewpoints than I had, um, and that ended up being really helpful because it, it it helped me say, oh, i never thought that someone might see it this way, or oh, that's good. Maybe I have overstated what I was thinking a little bit there, and and they weren't letting me get away with that. And uh, and let's let's kind of uh find a way that we can hammer this out sometimes they were able to help me change my my position sometimes as we corresponded they changed their position but in either case we were able to come to a position where we could help people on either side of that equation kind of see it and understand what we were talking about it's actually probably the most rigorous academic um, review process i've had for a publication and it made it a much much better publication so i think it's readable but but uh honest and and accessible and and uh uh, accurate.
0: That's awesome. And so the title is, let's talk about the book of Abraham, correct?
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. Let's talk about the book of Abraham.
0: Awesome. And we'll be putting a link to that in the description. So if any of our, our listeners want to check that out, they'll be able to easily access that. Um. So let's just jump on in and discuss some of this stuff. Um, Sounds good. So the first part I want to kind of just go into is maybe just a little bit of background. Um. So we have so Michael Chandler, he sells some mummies and some papyri to Joseph Smith. Can you kind of take us through a little bit of that and kind of um, what we know about from there to kind of when he starts translating, kind of some of the background with that?
1: Yeah, and I, I'll give you a fairly simplified version. You can get a longer version in, in this book that I've talked about. I'm actually working on a really long uh, book that is nothing but this background story instead of going into all these other issues. So I just want to give us like a really detailed background of, of fr- the story of Abraham, the story of the owner of the papyrus, the story of the guys that find the papyrus and all this. So that you, we can look forward to that sometime in the future. But for here, let's just say when Napoleon invades Egypt, uh, it opens Egypt up to Westerners in a way that it hadn't been for quite a while. And The French were only there for a while, the British ally with the Ottoman Empire who had been controlling Egypt, and they kicked the, the French back out. But then, Uh, all sorts of countries send their their consuls into the country and they're into egypt and they're bringing antiquities back and there's some italians who are working for the french and sometimes they're working for the french and they have a period of time where they're not and then they are again but during that period of time that they're not they just keep working in egypt and they're selling stuff the reason they're in egypt is because they supported napoleon and uh then it wasn't so popular to have supported napoleon back in italy so they didn't feel comfortable going back home. So they stayed in Egypt and kept working. And one of these um, sent home a collection of mummies and papyri. And um, they, they, that collection, he dies before that collection gets sold. Right? And again, actually, there's a, a new group called, uh, and you'll have to decide if you want to edit this out or not, Ryan. But anyway, there's a, there's a new group called... Um, gospel scholars who are, are allowing uh, different scholars to do online some more in-depth in discussions of this. So that's the one place so far that I've really been able to go into depth on this. It's like a two-hour lesson on this kind of topic. But uh, so listeners who want to get into that, they can, they can go there. I think you have to pay to, to be able to do those lessons. But anyway, um, so those, that shipment, his wife just arranges for someone to sell that it's a collection of 11 mummies and some papyri and she just arranges for someone to sell those and they end up being sold in the U.S. and it's the first sizable collection of Egyptian antiquities that ends up in the U.S. and they tour around the country for a while Uh, so people are charged to go see them in hotel lobbies and after a while the owners decide to sell them and uh, they've sold off some mummies at some point and so on they get down to four mummies and two rolls and a bunch of fragments of papyrus and that those that collection is taken to Kirtland, Ohio, uh, because they've heard that Joseph Smith is interested in ancient uh, antiquities in ancient Egypt in particular. So it's taken to Kirtland, Ohio. Joseph Smith uh, is shown them. He feels very strongly that he should acquire. The papyri. In fact, um, one of the accounts, one of the eyewitness accounts tells us that uh, when Joseph was first shown the papyri that he immediately started to translate some of it. Another account says that he then took the papyri home that night and spent time with them and when they came back the next day he had several pages worth of translation done. So he starts translating immediately and he, he wants to buy the papyri um the owner won't sell them or the pre- people representing the owners we're not sure which but anyway they won't sell the mummies and papyri separately so they try and raise the money and do they raise uh twenty four hundred dollars which is a lot of money especially when you consider they've already are been given all the money they could to build the temple because this is in july of 1835 so they're getting close to finishing the temple um so they come up with that twenty four hundred dollars buy the mummies and papyri and joseph smith starts translating
0: Awesome. So we'll go right there. And then maybe, we'll, maybe, maybe what we can do is we can kind of talk about um, what happened to the papyri after um, Joseph died For sure. and, kind of, and kind of move forward with that and then kind of talk about how that has led us kind of to re-examine some of the assumptions that we initially had about the papyri.
1: Yeah, I'd be happy to. So do you want to talk about translation first or come back to translation after we've continued the history of the papyri?
0: Um, let's come back to translation okay. after we kind of give a little bit more of a history. Okay.
1: So uh, Joseph keeps the papyri and the mummies. Uh, of course, when he's in Liberty Jail, well, they, they uh, there are some fascinating stories behind this. Like people try to steal them, and they have to go and they have to hide them for a while. They're hiding them under a girl's bed and all sorts of stuff. It's a really interesting story. Um, Joseph goes to Liberty Jail, and they have to hide him again. Anyway, they he or his parents maintain control of them. Uh, throughout the rest of his life uh, when he's not able to directly control them his parents do and his parents start to kind of support themselves by charging people to come see the antiquities so when Joseph dies his mother continues to do that she supports herself by charging people when she dies um, Emma Smith inherits them she's really had inherited them all along but, but Lucy Max Smith was the one that had control of them uh, because of Emma's kindness really anyway Emma sells them after Lucy Max Smith dies, and they're sold to a fellow named Abel Combs. Uh, Abel Combs sells them to the St. Louis Museum, and the St. Louis Museum charges people to come see them, and then they sell them to a museum in Chicago, and that museum is burned in the Great Chicago Fire. And we can look at the record of what they have in the museum beforehand and what they have after. And they have the mummies. Well, they have only two mummies. We don't know what happened to the other two mummies, by the way. So if you find those, let me know. But um, if uh, they they have the two mummies and the two rolls of papyrus before the fire, and they're not listed in what survives the fire. And mummies and papyrus both burn really, really well. Uh, I I run an excavation in Egypt, and uh, I I happen to know from experience uh, and historical records as well that they they burned very well. So we can assume that they burned. And for a long time, we thought that these were all of the papyri that um, that the uh, Joseph Smith had, that all of them had been burned in a fire. So it turns out that Abel Combs, this guy who bought the papyri from from Emma Smith, had given a couple of fragments of papyri, 10 fragments of papyri to his housekeeper, a woman named Charlotte Weaver. And Charlotte Weaver's daughter, Alice Huser, inherited these things, and she didn't know what to do with them, so she tried to sell them to the Metropolitan Museum of Art, who initially were not interested in them. But many years later, they decided they would like to get these, and so they work with her son, and they buy these papyri, and they then recognize that these are the papyri that Joseph Smith had owned, um, and they came with the receipts from Emma Smith saying that her husband Joseph Smith had owned them, so it wasn't hard for them to recognize it, Um, but... They, they recognize it. And uh, there's been a controversy right around then uh, about the book of Abraham. So they don't want to get involved in that. So they just kind of sit on them. 20 years later, an Egyptian scholar from the University of Utah, and he, he is Egyptian, and he focuses on the last phase of the Egyptian language, which is Coptic. He's doing research at the Met, or that's the, the nickname for the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And uh, he sees these fragments, he recognizes for them for what they are. And he knows N. Eldon Tanner, who's a member of the first presidency. And so he uh, ends up being a go-between to arrange a meeting between the Met and the church and the, ch- the Met gifts these papyri to the church. So that's when uh, they kind of resurface. that's in 1967. So this is many years after Joseph Smith received them. And uh, th- they resurface. And among those is the fragment one. So each of the fragments are numbered. And the church realizes, they say, oh, wait a minute. Now that we see those, we realize this other little thing we've had in the vault all along. We didn't know what it was. That's, a, that's also a fragment from Joseph Smith's papyri. So there are 11 fragments of what are called um, papyrus Joseph or Joseph Smith papyri, or, the, or each one will be called like papyrus Joseph Smith one and papyrus Joseph Smith two and so on so that we have 11 fragments papyrus joseph smith one is a fragment that has on it the original drawing that facsimile one is a facsimile of so we have that original drawing there on uh, fragment one and that's part of what also helped people make the book of abraham connection but it's also part of what got people really thinking and wondering what can we do with these in order to to kind of figure out whether joseph smith knew what he was talking about
0: Awesome, I think that's some really good background. And I think some of that later um, information is very relevant because I think the, the typical kind of assumption or that us as Latter-day Saints, I think we often have is that, so Joseph got this papyri and he translated it um, from the Egyptian language to the English language and boom, that was the process. And I think we have that assumption and such um, but with some later discoveries, those assumptions are worth questioning.
1: Absolutely. In fact, that's what I've found is that when people have uh, questions, not, not questions, but when they have struggles with issues about the Joseph Smith papyri, it is because they have either themselves made unnoticed assumptions or they've listened to someone else who's made unnoticed, or at least they're, they're not upfront about their assumptions. And that's where we get into trouble. That's where the problems come from is operating on unnoticed or and unreasonable or untested assumptions or presumptions rather than really looking at, at the facts and getting down to the actual data.
0: Yeah. So maybe at this point, could you help us understand why some people why, I guess, why the book of Abraham has been a stumbling block for some people. And yeah. then we can kind of answer to some answer, some of those concerns that people have with that.
1: Absolutely. So I'd say the first reason comes back to that fragment one, because that that drawing, uh, Egyptologist, I'm an Egyptologist, so we call that a vignette, right? Uh, uh, the, the drawings that are on these papyri, we call vignettes. So that vignette, that facsimile one is a facsimile of, it had hieroglyphic text on, on either side of it. Well, hieroglyphic on one side and above it and then we get to hieratic text which is a different script it's basically like print or cursive script but it had text around it and so the the question is um, what well not the question i guess we should say the assumption that most people made was that joseph smith translated the text around that drawing and since he associates the drawing with the story in some way that seems reasonable, right? It's a reasonable assumption, but it's actually a presumption until we recognize that it's an assumption, and then when we start to test it, then we can turn it into a hypothesis, right? But it stayed at the presumption phase. Most people presumed, without even thinking about it, that what Joseph Smith had translated was the text around this drawing, so we couldn't translate it in Joseph Smith's day. In our day, we can translate it, Uh, and so we translate that text, and it turns out to be a fairly common funerary document, not the most common, but a fairly common funerary document called the book of breathings. So it doesn't say anything about Abraham. And so if you are still operating under that presumption, then you say, oh, well, Joseph Smith was wrong. He didn't know what he was talking about. He thought that that he was translating the book of Abraham, but that's not what that text says. And so Joseph Smith was wrong. That's where That's the number one reason we'll get to another one in a little while that has to do with the facsimiles, but uh, that's the number one reason people struggle is because of that presumption, which is sad because it is based on a presumption. And when we've taken the time to move that into being a hypothesis, all right, when we can say, okay, we recognize the assumption, and we are now going to hypothesize Joseph Smith translated the text around the, the vignette that has the sacrifice of Abraham on it. Uh, how do we test that hypothesis? So there are a number of ways that we can test it. One of the ways is we can look at the text of the book of Abraham itself. Does it say anything about the relationship between the text and the drawing? And it does, it turns out. It says it twice in verse 12 and in verse 14 of chapter one, uh, in order that you can understand what I'm talking about, I refer you to the drawing at the beginning of this record, All right? And that is on a papyrus roll that's so uh, soon into it that you wouldn't say at the beginning, right? At the beginning, it sounds like it's a little ways away, back at the beginning, not right here where we're writing this, but that would have been right there where you're writing it, right? So I don't know that we can be conclusive with that, but the text of the book of Abraham suggests that there is some distance between the drawing and the text itself. So when we look at that first way of testing the hypothesis, we say, okay, that seems like the hypothesis is not correct. It may or may not be, we can't tell for sure, but it seems like the hypothesis may not be correct, right? Another way of testing it, is to compare it to ancient papyri from the same time period. So we can date this papyrus, and and it's from about 300 BC. All right, which means that if it has the Book of Abraham on it, it's a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy of when uh, Abraham wrote his in 2000 BC. Which is exactly how we have every ancient text. We've got copies of copies of copies. Right, every book of the Bible. Any any uh, there are a couple of ancient texts where we may have the original, but for the most part, we've got copies of copies of copies. So that's that's normal. Um, but we can say, let's look at papyri from that time period and do the text and the, the drawing they're associated with always align? And the answer is no. Quite frequently, they don't. They're, they're, they're some distance from each other. Quite frequently, they are right next to each other, maybe a little bit more than the majority of the time, but often they're not. And that's not a study I've done. That was a study a non LDS Egyptologist did. I'm just uh, taking his word for it, but he laid out the evidence and it seemed fairly convincing. So uh, the, the Uh, papyri and drawings are not necessarily I mean text and drawings are not necessarily always adjacent to each other Uh, what we would call a propinquity argument all right just being right next to each other Um, and so that way of testing the hypothesis also says uh, it may or may not be true we can't assume that this hypothesis is true so the third way which is probably the most important way Yeah, and if there are other ways of testing, I'd love to hear anyone else's ideas of how to test this hypothesis, by the way, but I've only thought of these three. The third way is to look at, well, what do eyewitnesses say? People who know, Joseph Smith didn't say anything, but people who saw Joseph Smith translating, or who know what he was translating, or heard him, or heard someone who was close to him talk about what he was translating, what do they say he was translating? So I've spent years and years and years uh, gathering and coming through every account I can find from newspapers, journals, letters, uh, you name it, we've been looking there. I'm sure there are a couple of sources we've missed somewhere in the world, but and and every, uh, I, I, it was probably about, 10, 15 years ago, I really started doing this, and I did it really intensely for about six years. It's been a, a little more passive the last while, but other people have been doing it. So I'd say about every other year, someone shows me a, a source I didn't know, but, uh, but for the most part, it's, we've gone through this stuff. And there are only a few eyewitnesses who actually talk about the source of the book of Abraham. And they all talk about the long roll being where, what Joseph Smith is translating from. Uh, There's no disagreement on that. Some of these are third hand accounts. Some of them are second hand accounts. Joseph is the only first hand account. Well, there are scribes um, that that would be first hand accounts that saw what he was working with, but they didn't really talk about the source. So we've got second and third hand accounts from a variety of time periods. And uh, if if they talk about what the source is, they talk about it being the long There's There's not disagreement there. Um, and that's after, we, we can date fairly well within several months when fragment one was, it's, it's glued to paper. It's mounted on paper, presumably to protect it. So we, we can date that to being in the kind of 37, 38, 1837, 1838 winter, basically is when that would have happened. So if um, all of these accounts talk about Joseph translating from the long roll, it's, they're talking about it after that, that fragment one is separate. So fragment one is not on the long roll, and we have some decent evidence to, to say now. I used to think it had been cut off from the long roll. Now it seems like probably it was never part of that long roll um, because of some descriptions we have of the color of the roll and the color of that papyri, and they don't seem to match. But anyway, so what that tells us is that all of the eyewitnesses agree that he's translating from the long roll and not fragment one. Now, you can make some arguments, well, they never said not fragment one, that's true. Um, You can make some arguments, well, you've got second and third-hand accounts, that's true, but you still have so much agreement one way and nothing saying the other way that uh, as a historian, I have to say, well, that seems fairly conclusive. I'm not going to put it in the 100% conclusive, but it's in the like 90, 95% conclusive. There's, There's lots of evidence for that position and none against it. Then you say, okay, and you've got several sources that agree, different sources. Some love Joseph Smith, some hate him, and so on and so on, but they all agree oh, the long roll. So we are going to say we're like 95% sure that the long roll is the source. So that way of testing the hypothesis says that the hypothesis is wrong. So now we've tested the hypothesis three ways. Two of them, one of them said may or may not be correct. One of them said probably not correct. And the other one said almost certainly not correct. So now we can look at that presumption and say it was a bad assumption. By every way we can test it and by fairly conclusive evidence, the Joseph Smith is not translating from the text around uh, facsimile one. And thus everyone who felt like that they could say something about whether Joseph Smith was a translator or not by translating the text around there, they were wrong. It was just based on a bad assumption and we can't criticize people for uh, for having made that assumption, but we need to get everyone to recognize it was a bad assumption. It's untenable. Abandon that assumption. We're not going to be able to understand things if we keep going over the same wrong path. Let's start going down some paths that might bear fruit and just admit that's not a way that we can figure out whether Joseph Smith was a translator or not. It, we don't have the ability to do that, given that that was a bad assumption. And everyone whose faith has struggled over that issue, it's really sad that it's it's been struggling over something that was a bad assumption.
0: Yeah, thanks for mentioning. It. I think and I think assumptions as people that have listened to the podcast, I think that's something that we've really covered is that the assumptions that we have they matter and yeah, they're they're worth reexamining if we're really looking for truth.
1: I agree. In fact, I was uh, listening. So I'm a I'm a member of all sorts of academic societies, and I, I mean these are uh, some other background things. I guess we should have said I'm the vice president for the Society of the Study of Egyptian Antiquities. I've held offices in the American Research Center in Egypt and the. Uh, the Albright. I'm a senior fellow at the Albright Institute for Archaeological Research, and so on. So another one that I'm a part of is the American Schools of Overse- Overseas Research. It used to be called the American Schools of Oriental Research. Um, these are people who do archaeology in, in the Near Middle Eastern areas around there. Um, and uh, as a member of that society a while ago, I was listening to a lecture on uh, synagogues from the time of the Savior. And it was it was pretty interesting. But uh, towards the end, we were talking about well, how do you interpret these things? Can you interpret um, some of these findings to, uh, uh, to say this about a synagogue or that about a synagogue and the, the moderator of the discussion uh, reminded us of something that archaeologists say all the time, and that is, well, what you bring with you as you examine it really affects the way you interpret the data that you have. And as archaeologists, we are always, we have that in the front of our mind, we need to be aware of that and so on. Somehow, we forget to do that with the book of Abraham right? And, and it, so that goes to your idea of your assumption. You need to remember that you have some ideas you bring with you that really heavily influence the way you interpret that information. And it's important for us to be upfront and honest about that with ourselves and others, because that will help us have more productive conversations about this.
0: So from here, I think it would be good to maybe just go a little bit more in depth with what do we know about the translation process and what do we not know? Great. And then if we could hear some, some theories for how that translation may have happened.
1: Yeah, I'd be happy to talk about that. So the fact of the matter is we don't know exactly how it happened. Joseph Smith is the only one who knows exactly how it happened. And he didn't tell us anything, which is the same with the Book of Mormon as well. He did not give us any kind of account of what it was like to translate either one other than to say it was from God. Right By the gift and power of God is the phrase he gives us uh, having to do with the Book of Mormon, and he doesn't even give us that much with the Book of Abraham. So we can't find out from Joseph Smith how he translated it. So we have to look to the next best thing. And in both cases, both with the Book of Mormon and with the Book of Abraham, the next best thing are his scribes or people who were present when he was translating. And that's where we get most of our information. All right, So we don't get a lot of information about that from the Book of Abraham either. The best thing we have is his scribe Warren Parrish, who was his scribe for translating part of the Book of Abraham, who later, when he has left the church and hates Joseph Smith and hates the church, and he's talking about it, he says, "I sat by his side as he claimed to, as he translated from the hieroglyphics, as he claimed to receive it by direct inspiration from heaven." All right, so that's that's the one bit that we have. He's receiving direct inspiration from heaven, um, and then, as I said, we can look at the historical record, and and it seems fairly clear he started translating before he did anything else um so the question is what is the method of that translation and since joseph doesn't tell us anything and we get very little from from it's warren Parrish who told us that when joseph returns to translating a little bit or at least editing it maybe some translating maybe mostly just editing and revising and putting some hebrew in there in 1842 we get some eyewitnesses then that talk about him being a seer, as he translates, that talk about him using the Urim and Thummim. So we don't really have anyone talking about that in 1835. We have a little bit of a hint, but in 1842 in Nauvoo, we have some people talking about him using the Urim and Thummim, uh, and about him being a seer and so on. So that's our next best bit of evidence, but it still really doesn't tell us much. So we have to just kind of try and reason this out. That's where we're left. And we have to be aware that we're we're at a disadvantage and we can't make really strong conclusions when all we're doing is reasoning out given circumstantial evidence right but that's 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 the data we have available to us is circumstantial evidence besides those little tidbits i just mentioned so the thing we can do is we can look at what are the ways he did translation projects before this so one of them was the book of mormon and the book of mormon he had an english or he had a, a text in a language you didn't know physically written on on plates of gold and he gives it to us in a language he does know. And often he is not even looking at the physical record. He's just receiving it through a seer stone, either the Urim and Thummim seer stone or this other seer stone he has. But he's giving us this, it really it being revealed to him from heaven uh, as he writes it down in English. It's, it's The physical text exists, but he's not using it that much. So that's translation project number one. Translation project number two is what we call the Joseph Smith translation of the Bible. He called it the new translation. And in this case, he's looking at an English copy of the Bible. So that's a language he knows. But he's getting direct inspiration from heaven to give us things that aren't on the original. Right. So it's not translation going from one language to another. uh, And it's not giving us stuff that's even in the text he's looking at. It's giving us stuff that's not in the text he's looking at. But that's one of his translation processes. There's a third one where he sees, and we can read about this in section 13, where he sees in vision the parchment of John. I don't know what language it's written in, probably Aramaic or Greek, uh, but he doesn't know either one of those. And he doesn't seem to even see the text or you know, the, the, the writings. He just sees that this text exists, it seems like, but then he gives us a translation from it. All right, so those are the three models we get before the book of Abraham. So with the book of Abraham, we know it's associated with the papyri in some way. Joseph talks about it being on the papyri, other people talk about it being on the papyri, so it seems like the most likely scenario is that this exists somewhere on that long roll, and that he is translating it using the gift and power of God. We'll come back to how he translates that in just a minute, but um, so people often call this the missing papyrus theory, because it was on the long roll, which is now missing, it's been burned, right, So that means we don't have the papyrus he was translating from. We are missing the papyrus, but it was on papyrus and he's translating it. That would be something like the Book of Mormon experience, right? But what if it is like the translation of the Bible experience where he looks at the papyri like he looked at a King James version of the Bible. And as he's looking at it, inspiration flows to him that serves as the catalyst to him being open to inspiration and inspiration flows to him about a text that Abraham wrote that actually existed. And he doesn't need to see the text, just like he didn't see the, the, what we call the book of Moses, which is the Joseph Smith translation of the first part of Genesis. He, he doesn't see any of that. He just has that revealed to him and he writes it down is that's what's going on with papyri. And it's possible. We call that the catalyst theory. Well, a lot of people call it the catalyst theory. And that, that would mean that he looks at the papyri and the papyri serve as a catalyst to open his mind to receive a revelation from God. And he gives us that revelation. So that's, that's a potential theory. And there's a little bit of evidence for that. It's certainly, it, it, he hints at it being a revelatory experience when he talks about working on an alphabet and grammar, which we'll come back to in a minute. And the principles of astronomy unfolded to him. Now, that may be, translating Abraham 3, that may be coming to understand uh, facsimile 2, and then it gives us the explanation of facsimile 2. It may be something else, but it sounds like a revelatory experience, doesn't it? So that would be the catalyst theory, but it's also possible, and that would be something close to maybe a, a, a mix. Either it's like the, the Joseph Smith translation, or maybe it's a mix of the Joseph Smith translation of the Parchment of John, or something along those lines but it may be just something completely new and different altogether, we don't know. None of the other three translation projects match each other, so I don't know that the fourth one needs to be like any of the earlier three, but maybe it is, I don't know. Um, and it's possible it's a mixture of these. It's possible that there's some that's written on the papyrus and that also other stuff comes to them just through revelation, right? We, we don't know, we can't tell. Um, so that's, that's very interesting stuff. We don't know which of those he, he worked uh, on or, or how he gave us that translation. There is a subset to the missing papyrus theory. If it is on the papyrus and Joseph Smith is translating it, what is the method for that translation? All right. So is it all through inspiration and revelation? Or some have argued that Joseph Smith created a grammar and then used that grammar to translate it. And it's absolutely true that that Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery and W.W. W. Phelps create a couple of, of pages of documents that they call the Egyptian alphabet. And they have characters. Some of them are seem to be Book of Mormon characters. Some of them seem to be um, characters that W.W. W. Phelps was kind of making up for the Adamic language. And some of them seem to be from the papyri, the majority from the papyri, Um and it seems to be actually a continuation. We can demonstrate pretty well. It was a continuation of a project that W.W. Phelps had already started on, which is trying to crack the Adamic language based on like three words, right? That's only Phelps thinks he can crack languages based on three words, but he does. So uh, so he's got this project that he's he's kind of working on and, and it morphs into this and it incorporates some of the ideas from that that damoc project into this um, and so they create those documents and then we have created a little bit later and there's some debate as to how much later I suspect that this next document is to, uh, created like half a year later or more but uh, they, there's a book that's created that's called the grammar and alphabet so the first one are these, these couple of pages and each, Joseph Oliver and W.W. Phelps each have their own copy of uh, in their own handwriting of the Egyptian alphabet then there's a booklet called the grammar and alphabet of the Egyptian language which does something similar to those Egyptian alphabet ones, but, but it's a little bit different. It, it's a lot more extensive. It starts out being a W.W. W. Phelps uh, thing where he's doing all the writing, and then we get Warren Parrish, who becomes Joseph's scribe partway through. He's doing some of the writing. W.W. Phelps always maintains possession of this, and so it seems like it's mostly something that he's doing. Joseph is certainly aware of it and, and interested in it. How, how involved he is, we just can't tell. Maybe heavily involved. Maybe barely involved, maybe not involved at all other than being aware of it. We, we just can't tell. So the question is, some people have proposed that they've used, um, that Joseph Smith used this grammar and alphabet or Egyptian alphabet and grammar that they made up, that that's something he just made up and then used it to translate the papyri. Right. And the problem is that it's kind of weird stuff, kind of gobbledygook. It's hard to make sense of it. Some people have put forward some ideas that I think uh, are starting to make sense that maybe they're doing some ontological things and so on. I'll let those people put forth their arguments. They're not all published yet. So I'm not going to get too into that uh, because it's not mine to do. But, but I think there are some people who are helping us make a little bit of sense of what they're doing. But, but it's not in terms of it working as a grammar to translate Egyptian. It doesn't work as a grammar to translate Egyptian. All right, so then we have to ask ourselves, well, is that what Joseph Smith was doing? Was he using it as a grammar to translate Egyptian? And it becomes fairly clear that he wasn't, both because we can see, as I've already said, he was translating before he ever had a chance to create that. So he's translating by inspiration before any kind of grammar is created. And then if you look at, and I have done this, if you look at all the things that are going on of those documents very carefully, I think that, that it becomes very clear that they're not being used to translate. I don't know what they are. I don't know what they are doing with them, but they're not using them to translate. So that leaves us back to, oh, and we can also look at the, the way anyone who knows Joseph Smith says he's translating, and they all say by inspiration. No one says anything but inspiration over a long period of time pro or against Joseph Smith and so on and so on. They all say it's by inspiration. So I think we can, again, we're, we're best served if we abandon theories that don't work. That's a theory that doesn't work. He's not using the grammar and alphabet to translate. Are they interrelated? Is the translation and, and the creation of the grammar interrelated? Yeah, they are. Joseph Smith tells us he works on one, then the other, one, and then the other. So they're interrelated. And remember, we said he was working on the alphabet when the principles of astronomy unfolded. So they're interrelated somehow, but the, the grammar is not the tool for translation. We should abandon that theory uh, so that we can try and we can't figure things out if we just keep rehashing theories that don't work. So let's abandon that theory and recognize that Joseph Smith says and everyone who knows him says he was translating through inspiration. So it's inspiration and it's not from the the text around facsimile one. Whether it is inspiration uh, for a text that is on this long roll or not, we don't know. But he he is translating through inspiration. And that's about as much as the data allows us to, to do. That, that means the data doesn't allow us to test whether Joseph Smith knew what he was doing as a translator. Well, he didn't know what he was doing. It came from God. But whether Joseph Smith was successful as a translator, um, because we don't have the, the data or the information to be able to make that test. We, it's just plain impossible.
0: Thanks for explaining that. Um, They're kind so of long, a qu- sorry. <laughs> no, you're fine. That was a great explanation. And that's exactly what we need to hear. Um, so I just have a question about the the facsimiles. Yeah. Um, so were any of those preserved in the papyri that survived that we currently have? Or do we know about those primarily from like um, them being copied during Joseph yeah. Smith's time period?
1: So facsimile one did survive, or the original facsimile one, that's on fragment one, the Joseph Smith papyrus fragment one, the original facsimile two and three did not survive. But I'm I'm glad you brought this up because you remember I said there were two things that most often people had questions about and that people struggled with. And, And this is the second one, which is people tend to ask, does what Joseph Smith say those facsimiles meant match what Egyptologists would say? So again, there's a whole host of assumptions that go into that. But even before we get into those assumptions, let me just say um, that I frequently talk about or, or encounter people saying, does Joseph Smith's translation of them match what uh, Egyptologists, how they translate them? Joseph Smith doesn't give us a translation of them. He gives us an interpretation of them. I'm saying this, so maybe you know most people would say, well, it is a translation. So as a, a professional translator, Uh, And the way I understand and define translation, not the way Joseph Smith did, because he used it to mean like 700 different things, but the way translators today would use it. Joseph Smith does not give us a translation of the facsimiles. He gives us an interpretation of the symbols, and he refers to what some of the text means, but he doesn't translate it for us. So he will say, as is made evident by the text above this person's head, or these things are to be had in the temple. But he doesn't give us a translation of it, so I I think we just want to be clear on that point. That uh, it's a technical point that's worth being clear on, because what we're dealing with is interpretations of symbols, and that's important because when you translate something, you you can argue about how to interpret the meaning of those words. But you you translate this word means this word. Sometimes still it's difficult, right? But there's always a bit of interpretation in there. But when you're talking about symbols, it's always all interpretation, and it's open to multiple interpretations. Symbols are supposed to have multiple meanings. Right? And that's where we get into our problem with assumptions. So when people say, we want to check and see if what Joseph Smith said these mean matches what Egyptologists would say they mean, what they're really saying is, we want to check and see if what Joseph Smith said they mean matches what ancient Egyptians said they meant. And there are two different assumptions being made there. One is that if we want to check what Joseph Smith said they meant against what ancient Egyptians said they meant, we can do so by checking against what Egyptologists say they meant, All right? Now, I'm an Egyptologist, so this is me speaking about me and my colleagues. We're not able, especially for these drawings in this time period, we're not able to give you fully reliable interpretations. Let me just give you two examples. Facsimile one, most people say, oh, that's a mummification scene. If you look at it carefully, and and uh, I've got places you can look at this more in my book. Uh, we just don't have time to go into it here, but you can look at this more in my book. I'm in the middle of writing an article, Egypt, an Egyptological article that's been accepted to an Egyptological journal, and them just have made the couple of revisions they've asked me to make. And I, in fact, I was finishing those revisions or, or editing that this morning. I'm hoping to finish it and send it off this afternoon. Um, but uh, uh, so lots of places where we can publish on this. It is not a mummification scene and it is different from any, it, it, there are some scenes that are kind of similar to it, but it's different. It is just different. It has a number of different things going on with it. And when we have that, when we have something that's different, it's hard to know how to interpret it, right? We, we, we can't be sure of our interpretations. Um, and that's even true for the kind of drawing we have. Facsimile two is a drawing that's called a hypocephalus. And uh, there are lots of versions of that, no two exactly alike, but there are lots that are somewhat similar to to facsimile two. And uh, some Egyptologists would say this figure and this figure and this figure are these figures and they mean this. And there were others who would say, no, they mean this. And so you even had a couple different camps among Egyptologists as to what they meant. Um, So that was difficult in and of itself. But then my my colleague and friend, John Gee, he's a great Egyptologist uh, at BYU, and he's one of the world's experts on hypocephali. And he finally found one where the Egyptians themselves labeled some, not all, but some of those characters. And he compared it and he published this in an Egyptological source. It's just, I mean, you can't argue with what he, he said in here. And it was very well accepted. He, he saw that the way the Egyptians labeled them hardly ever, well, not hardly ever, but, but more, most often did not match what either of those camps of Egyptologists had been saying they meant, right? As Egyptologists, we were wrong on interpreting that. And, and so we have to uh, recognize, and good scholars should be humble enough to recognize what they're capable of and what we're not capable of. And as Egyptologists, we're not capable of saying, these drawings mean this, and they always mean this. Uh, that's how the ancient Egyptians would have interpreted them. We, we've just demonstrated that we can't do that for these kinds of drawings. So that's important for people to keep in mind. And it's sad because I know people who are struggling with their faith over this very issue when it, it, they're, they're relying on Egyptologists to do something that Egyptologists, we're just not fully capable of doing right now. But there's yet another problem. There's another set of assumptions. Because even trying to compare it to what Egyptologists say it mean and knowing that there may be some, some dissonance between Egyptologists and ancient Egyptians, that may be a completely meaningless thing because we don't know if Joseph Smith is trying to tell us what ancient Egyptians would have seen in this. There are several other possibilities. One possibility is we know that ancient Jews from the time period when these papyri were created, that they took Egyptian elements of culture, Egyptian stories, Egyptian symbols, Egyptian drawings, and they they gave them their own interpretation, an interpretation that worked that often involved Abraham. So I'll give you a quick example. Jesus Christ gives a parable of Lazarus and the rich man. And he says that Lazarus, this poor person, ends up in Abraham's bosom. Well, it's, it's almost exactly as an Egyptian story that predated it of a, a person who has shown a rich man and a poor man, and then they go see them in the hereafter. And the poor man is in, is in Osiris's bosom, or he's with Osiris, and things are going well for him and not for the rich man. It's just really the same story, but in, the savior seems to have taken um, Osiris and switched it for Abraham and gave it a Jewish interpretation. And we actually find Abraham and Osiris being switched in any number of places in ancient Egypt. So they they, they somehow became somewhat equated with each other. Um, So maybe Joseph Smith is telling us what a group of Jews in Egypt, how they would have interpreted these drawings. And we just don't have enough information about that to be able to assess whether he would have done it correctly or not. Um, It's also possible that there's something else going on. There were priests in Thebes and, and Facsimile one, at least, was owned, and facsimile one and three was owned by a priest in Thebes, by the way, from this time period. So there are priests in Thebes at that time period who were collecting stories of uh, Greek uh, mythological stories. Stories from Jewish scriptures, stories from Mesopotamian, and intermixing them with their religious rituals. That's something we wouldn't do because we're monotheistic, but polytheists were happy to do that. So they used Jewish figures in their own religious rites and they, they mix them in a way that they would sometimes reinterpret uh, or reassign Egyptian ideas to Jewish ideas and intermingle them. So could Joseph Smith be telling us how that group of priests in Thebes, like the priest who owned this, these drawings, could he be telling us how they would have interpreted them when they're looking at them from a kind of mixed Egyptian Jewish point of view? It's very possible he, he would have done that. And, and I'm in the midst of analyzing what that would look like. And it, and it just works really well. It makes a tremendous amount of sense what Joseph Smith is telling us. It's very possible that's what he's doing. But I don't know if that's what he's doing. It's also possible Joseph Smith is just telling us what we should get out of them, regardless of anyone in the ancient world. And that um, in the end, we're Uh, we're supposed to get layers and layers and layers of meaning out of these symbols he's not giving us just one single set way that one group of people would have interpreted it so you see the problem again we've got this assumption that we can check what joseph smith said against something else but we don't know what to check it against if we're open and honest then we realize that if we're making assumptions we don't realize that so let's be honest we don't know what to check it against so again we are incapable of assessing joseph smith's prophetic abilities using uh, the facsimiles as a test. It's just not possible. Are there tons of places where what Joseph Smith said they meant match what we would say from an egyptological point of view? Lots and lots of cases, actually. It's really kind of fun, and it's interesting, and I think either Joseph Smith is the best guesser in the world, or he's inspired. Those are kind of my two choices I come down to, But, um, but still, I don't know what to do with that because I don't know in what way we should be comparing the
0: facsimiles. Awesome. I think that's a great explanation. Um, Generally, I like to close by just asking my guests, like if they have any advice for those that are struggling with their testimonies. And then I have them kind of explain what the gospel means to them. Um, But before we go into that, is there anything else about the book of Abraham that you'd want to just briefly say before we go on to those last two questions?
1: Um, yeah, maybe I'll just say one other, two other things. One I've just touched okay. on. Well, I've touched on both of them, and that's why I want to say it. Um, and and because I like to be fully honest and transparent, and I don't want someone to say, oh, look, he kind of touched on that, and then he ran away from it. So um, I talked about how in, in uh, facsimile three, Joseph Smith identifies the characters there as different than typically Egyptologically we would. So for example, he says that this figure that we would normally say is Osiris on his throne, uh, he says that it's Abraham on, a, on Pharaoh's throne. Um, and uh, and the, I'm going to come back to that for both of these points. But for one of these points, Joseph Smith says in a couple of cases, as you can see from the, the hieroglyphs above their head or the writing above their head or above their hand and things like this. And it's pretty hard. We don't have the original of this. We only have this facsimile and the, the drawings weren't carved in such a way that we can always figure out exactly what they say. So uh, some people have said that we can figure it out exactly. And, and they're sugarcoating it for you we can't figure it out exactly but we can make some fairly decent guesses and in in those cases it doesn't indicate it being the person that joseph smith said all right so i want to be honest about that it it, that doesn't seem to, to be what joseph smith said but at the same time i would say well then what do i do with that my best guess would be that joseph smith knew how we the interpretation we should draw out of it again I don't know if that's because a Jew or an Egyptian priest or Egyptians in general or we should get out of it but he knew what we should get out of it and then he assumed that the hieroglyphs above it said that and I'm okay with that I'm okay with Joseph Smith making some assumptions since we're talking about assumptions I'm okay with Joseph Smith making some assumptions that God didn't feel the need to disabuse him of if God were disabusing us of all our wrong assumptions then Joseph Smith would never have time to do anything. God would just spend all of his days, all of his time disabusing him of wrong assumptions because that's, we, we all have plenty of them, right? So I'm, I'm all right with that kind of a thing. And maybe there's some other explanation, I don't know. Um, but we also then come down to this idea that I was saying, uh, and we touched on this just a little bit, that Osiris, we would typically say that that's Osiris on a throne, but Joseph Smith said it was Abraham. And we have actually found examples of that kind of drawing where they label it as Osiris, and other examples where Egyptians labeled it as Abraham or Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, and so the Egyptians themselves would put Abraham in that position. Uh, and uh, that's just one of the many examples that I mentioned. There are lots of, and not just with the facsimiles, but also with the text of the book of Abraham. There are all sorts of things that just match really well with the ancient world, either in Abraham's day or in the day of this priest that owned these papyri it just matches really really well and and so again i i'm not saying that proves that joseph smith is a prophet um but i'm saying that wow that's interesting to me for that for me that that's both a confirming nudge to my faith but it also is so much fun because it just gives me more ground to explore and try and understand the book of abraham better so that's the the last stuff i'd do before the other things that you were going to ask me to do and i don't remember what those are now
0: you're fine. That was a great explanation. Thanks for clarifying those things. So yeah, the, the last two questions that I wanted to go into is the first one being any advice that you might have for those that are struggling with their testimony right now.
1: Yeah, I would have two different bits of advice that work together. and And one of them we've kind of touched on a number of times, and that is um, let's be clear about what we are capable of or what different ways of learning are capable of and not capable of. And I have a whole chapter on this in my book. Um, but to give it really quickly, the academic process, which is a wonderful, fantastic process, we should use as much as, as we can. But as I've said here, and it's I have to go through it dozens of times in my book, just as I deal with things, and I'm trying to be a, a transparent scholar. Um, the academic process is we don't have enough information or data for it to be capable of helping us uh, know uh, whether Joseph Smith is, is a prophet and whether he's inspired as we look at the book of Abraham. But the, the, the academic process is not capable of doing that. We don't have enough data. The revelatory process is capable. Right? And in my book, I go into epistemology and ways of learning and so on and how all these processes work together. The short version is here. The revelatory process is capable of it. And, and that's what it's designed to do, is to give us answers like that. And there is no reason we should prioritize the academic process over the revelatory process. We should. There is reason to prioritize the revelatory process. God is always more trustworthy than any other source of knowledge. Uh, he just knows more, right? Um, we shouldn't say, let's use either one exclusively. Let's use both for what they can give us, but let's recognize what one can't give us and, and, and what one can. And the revelatory process is the process that can give us an answer on this. And it's important for people to recognize that. And that's true, not just for the book of Abraham, but for all sorts of things. Don't discount the revelatory process. There are people who would tell you that's unreliable. You should ignore it. Um, you can't trust it. And, and uh, if you're only using the academic process, then you're objective and that's fair. That's, that's garbage. It's not more objective. It's uh, the, it, it, not believing is a faith-based choice as much as believing. Uh, we just can't let the world keep duping us into this. And, and the academic process is absolutely a valid measure of learning. And people who have not experienced it, I feel bad for them, but that doesn't mean I'm going to let them invalidate my real experience with it. So that's one bit of advice. The other, and I can say this is shorter than that first one, but it is this. I would recommend anyone who is struggling and trying to find answers for anything in the gospel, pursue finding answers with everything you have. But most of the time, people aren't doing that. We, again, start to pursue it with our mind, and we do everything we can. We're pursuing it by reading this source and that source and this source and that source and going everywhere. And I'm going to say you read everything you can, but that includes the scriptures. And what I find is that most people, when they start to struggle, they start reading non-believing sources, and they stop believing, the, or they stop reading the scriptures. And so I would urge you, go ahead and read everything else, but don't stop reading the scriptures. That's just ridiculous and foolish when you think about it. To say, okay, I'm going to try and find this out, but I'm not going to look at one side of the story, and I'm not going to read, look at this thing that says it can give me answers to my questions. I'm only going to look at these other things that say they can give me answers to my questions. That's that's just silly. It's short-sighted, right? So I would say read everything, but as you're trying to find your answers, never stop reading the scriptures. If you have questions about the book of Abraham, keep reading the book of abraham if you have questions about Joseph smith in other ways keep reading the book of mormon or the doctrine and covenants don't stop reading and i believe that if we will not yield on that point study all sorts of things but don't stop studying the scriptures that the answers will come but they they can't come if you foolishly abandon that uh, avenue of trying to find your answers so keep reading the scriptures no matter what always keep reading them
0: wonderful advice. I love that. And the last question I want to ask is what does the gospel of Jesus Christ mean to you?
1: Well, it means everything to me. So if we're going to go back to that idea of uh, being transparent about uh, the things that we bring to the table when we're trying to interpret things, let me just say um, I have had real and powerful and undeniable and repeated revelatory or inspirational experiences that teach me that God loves us, that he sent his son, Jesus Christ to save us, and that he restored the gospel through Joseph Smith. And knowing those things affects the way I view everything in life. It affects my relationships with my families for the better. It affects my relationship with other people for the better. It affects my relationship with myself for the better. It affects the way I deal with hard things and fun things and everything else. It makes everything in my life better And without it, my life would be less less rich, less happy, less peaceful, more full of anxiety and fear and all sorts of things. But with it, there's so much peace and joy and and that affects every aspect of my life.
0: That's powerful. Thank you so much for for being on, Kara. You've said a lot of great things that I think will help a lot of people.
1: Well, it, it is my pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity. Thanks. Uh, thank you, Ryan. I appreciate it. And I appreciate what you're doing. It's a good work. I hope uh, that, that we're all in this together. Let's just help each other find answers and, and work together in a kind and honest way.
0: This has been the To Whom Shall We Go podcast.
1: We'll see you next time.